Uh, this is going to be an exciting thing. Guys, I want to challenge you. Uh, if your wife has not signed up for this, I want to encourage you to encourage her to participate in this. This is going to be, I think, a really transformative thing. We'd like to ask our ushers to come forward and take the offering. I've got one brief announcement while they're coming forward, and that is Grace 101 is our new members class, or it's the class that we have for those who want to find out a little bit more about Grace and what Grace is like. And that's coming up in two weeks on January the 21st. Wait, that's next week, January the 21st, 10.45 a.m., second service. So I want to encourage you to uh, think about doing that. And immediately after second service today, we're going to do a baptism. Um, we don't have a baptismal pool here at Grace, so we uh, do the extra work. And because it's cold, we're, we're going to bring a baptismal pool into the atrium, second service, and if you'd like to be there for the baptism, we'd love to have you be there. It's going to be, going to be a neat deal. All right, let me, let me open us up in prayer. Father, as we dig into your word, we want to thank you that you authored your word through the influence of the Holy Spirit, and he is our teacher. And so, Lord, I pray that you would empower us, Lord, as we fellowship in your word this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are currently in a series called Living in the Supernatural, and uh, we started off last Sunday talking about transformation. This Sunday, I want to talk about a concept called hosting the presence of God. And I'm convinced that if we want to encounter genuine transformation, we have to learn about this concept and what this concept is like. This concept may be familiar to some of you, uh, but maybe... Maybe it's not familiar to others of you. Hopefully by the end, you will have a vision for what this means. Uh, I want to start off with a, with a little bit of a story. Our, when our, our daughter was raising her family in England, she and her family now live in Seattle. But when they were raising their family in, in England, uh, we learned a lot about British culture. And as you know, London is a very, very beautiful and very expensive city. In fact, Forbes listed it as the fifth most expensive city to live in in the world. Part of it is housing. And if you want to get a flat in London, good luck. Because they're hard to come by and the ones you can find are very expensive. So guess what people do? People will rent out a room in London. Because, I mean, if you're, if you're fresh out of school and you're a, a nurse or you're a, a beginning salesperson, you can't afford these massively expensive flats in London. So you rent out a single room in London. Okay, well, that, that's, that's good. But that also means you are living at very close quarters with the family who owns or is renting the flat because you're subleasing it from them or maybe you're, you're renting it. And you get to know that person really well if you're the owner. And if you're the renter, you get to know that family very well. And you see all the good, you see all the bad, you see the good moods, the bad, new, the, the, the bad moods. You are, you are at very close quarters. So our daughter and son-in-law did this with a, a number of people uh, as they lived in, in Bedford, which is north of London. Um, some of those folks they had were, you know, were, were good. One was really good, and uh, Katie's become a great friend of our entire extended family. She was wonderful. But you were at very close quarters with people in that set of, that set of circumstances. Now, 
In a very real sense, you as a follower of Christ are hosting at very close quarters the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this very clearly in Revelation 3.20. Here's Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Now, when Jesus said that in Revelation, you have to think about houses in the first century. They were not 1,500 square foot houses or 3,000 square foot houses or 8,000 square foot houses. They were not houses with mother-in-law suites where you could get away from a person. We're talking 200 square foot homes, and Jesus is saying, um, I, want, I want in to the house that is your life. And I don't, want, I don't want to just be in there as an outsider. I want to have a fellowship meal with you. We see the same concept modeled for us in Genesis 18, 1 through 33, where Abraham literally hosts the presence of God. What I want to do is I want to tell you the story, and then I want to explain the concept in some detail, and I'm going to show you two ways that we can do this, both individually and as a church. I want to start with the story. Um, let, me, let me read the passage so you get a flavor for what's going on. And the Lord, and by the way, that is Yahweh, the, the proper name for God. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. So here's how the story. I, I want you to just imagine your mind's eye. I want you to imagine a tent city near the hills of Hebron, south actually 14 miles south of Bethlehem. You know, when you think about a tent city you, in the year 2018, you probably envision homelessness and poverty in a big city. Not so in the ancient world. The tent city speaks of the affluence and the wealth of a patriarch. Abraham's tents are large and spacious. They're made of thickly woven black goat's hair. Goat's hair in the ancient world was, was like our Gore-Tex. You know, goat's hair tents were breathable in the summer, and they were keeping, able to keep out the rain when it was wet. And Abraham had dozens and dozens of tents. The central tent housed Abraham's immediate family. The outlying tents would have housed his servants, his shepherds. We know that he had a powerful security force. We know that somewhere in that tent city, there were casks and barrels of money because Abraham was very rich in gold and silver and you can bet he had armed security guards guarding his cash because cash was very important and hard to come by in the ancient world. So in your mind's eye, go back to the scene in Hebron. I want you to imagine that you round a bend, you gaze at the city, what would you see? Off on one side, you would have seen a whole lot of tents, dozens and dozens of tents. Off, way off in the distance, you would have seen sheep and cattle, lambs, bulls, goats, and so on. Off on the other side, you would have seen a grove of trees, and inside that grove, 
there was an altar to Yahweh. And Abraham was actively worshiping Yahweh. As you look more closely at Abraham's tent, you would see Abraham seated under the entrance of his tent. Now, he's not just chilling out, hanging out with the guys. The entrance of a patriarch's tent was the equivalent of the throne of a king in the ancient world. That's where the patriarch rendered legal decisions. That's where the patriarch would adjudicate problems between his various different shepherds and herdsmen. That's where the patriarch would scan the road because visitors were very important in the ancient world. That's where you got your information. Nobody had the internet. Nobody could check in on news. So they would look for visitors and hear news of the ancient world. Abraham would sit there and scan waiting for visitors. And on this particular day, about midday, some travelers do pass by. Abraham is scanning the road at the entrance to his tent, and he notices three men approaching, and their headgear is, is keeping them shielded from the sun. They're slow. They're deliberate. It was hot. As they come closer, Abraham notices something about the man in the middle. Abraham knows what it's like to be in the presence of the infinite personal God. He knows what that's like. He's encountered that on, on multiple occasions. And there's something about the man in the middle that is really interesting to him. And he thinks, can it, can it, can it be? Can, can, this, can this be the God of the universe whom I have fellowship with before, fellowship with in the past? When that, that man among the three is not yet 50 yards away, Abraham is convinced. And Abraham runs toward those three men the God of the universe, surrounded by two angelic beings. He runs. Everybody in the tent city is shocked because they revere Abraham. They see him running toward these three men. By the way, in that culture, men never ran. You might run if you were a soldier. You might run if you were an athlete, but there was no pro you know, sports back then. You never ran if you were in the ancient world. Abraham is running, running like somebody not used to running. Everybody is, has their eyes riveted on Abraham as he does this. And then they're shocked even more because Abraham gets down on his knees and he bows to the ground. And everybody in the tent city is thinking, who are these guys? Like, who's come to visit us? Abraham immediately performs all the roles that good hospitality demanded in the ancient world, the centerpiece of which was a fellowship meal. Abraham could totally have, have delegated this. Look, he's got 318 armed men in the camp. He's got shepherds and servants and attenders. He has chefs. He could have totally delegated this fellowship meal. But he doesn't because he wants the privilege of serving the meal to God himself. So notice what happens? Abraham goes quickly into the tent and says, quick, he said, is addressing Sarah. Now, let me just pause here for a second. How many of you guys have ever gone into the house and barked out orders to your wife and had your wife go, wait a second, what are you doing barking out orders to me? Abraham's going to bark out some orders to his wife. Now, I realize the culture was very different. Culture was very different. 
But Abraham is feeling the urgency of hospitality. And I will tell you that everybody in that camp felt the urgency of hospitality when these three men walked up to Abraham's tent. Sarah, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd. He took a calf, tender and good. How did he know it was tender and good? He's a cattleman. He knows, he knows if there's going to be a good cow, calf out there. He gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. It's a beautiful picture of a huge royal banquet. Let me tell you, three sias of flour would be six gallons of flour. It's a lot of bread. In fact, I, I looked up on the internet uh, to see how much, and I, I read one source that, that said it could be 16 big loaves of bread for three people. I think he prepared a lot of stuff. And this isn't a little scrawny animal. We're talking about a full-grown calf, a large calf. You can feed dozens of guests with a calf like this. This is a royal banquet. And notice this is not a kosher meal because they have milk and meat together at the same meal. Kosher would come in later. This is a royal banquet, the kind of which you would see um, only rarely in the ancient world. And once everything's on the table, Abraham stands back, as was the custom, and he waits on his guests. You know, you need more barbecue sauce? Here it is. We got it right here. You want an extra helping of, of beef? You want it sliced or chopped? We've got it, got it right here. You want a little bit more of, the, of the, the yogurt to go along with your meat? We, we, got, we got it right here. Need some more spices to go on top of that? Abraham is waiting because he wants to host um, the presence of God. Every verb in this section, you look back up here, every, I underline these, every verb speaks of things done quickly, 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 and then he stands and he waits while they eat and have this long meal. Now, pause for a second. I haven't yet defined hosting the presence of God, but let me just say that <clears throat> when you host the presence of God, there are times where you will experience God's manifest presence. I'll define that in a second. But you will encounter God's manifest presence. It may, call, it may show up in fellowship with other believers. It may show up while you're working on a project at work and you sense God's pleasure upon you as you work and you get four times as much done in the time allotted. You encounter His manifest presence at work. It may happen in your family, where you encounter the presence of God in the outworking of your family. When God's manifest presence shows up, I want you to notice what, what Abraham does, is he quickly welcomes that presence, and he stands in that presence, allowing the existential presence of God and his existential presence and God's presence to be. He savors it. He enjoys it. Now, when we host the presence of God, God often ministers to us 
in some amazing ways. Notice what happened in verses 9 through 15. And I want you to remember where we are in the story. The meal is finished. There's lots of leftovers. The men have sighed with satisfaction. They've had a lot to eat. And they begin by asking Abraham a question. Abraham, where's your wife? Did they know where, her, where his wife is? Does, does God know where Sarah is? I mean, seriously, does, does he know? he's God. He knows where, he is, where she is. And Sarah's been back in one of the tents preparing things. They could hear the pots and the pans and things like that. They know exactly where she is. So what's this question about? Well, in, in a lot of ways, it's a question about the state of her heart. Abraham, where's Sarah's heart? Abraham, are you aware of the state of Sarah's heart? Why was that important? Sarah's heart was in pain, so much pain. For starters, Abraham and Sarah were childless. Here they have this great wealth. And the one thing that would give Sarah the sense of identity that she longed for was a child. And it's the one thing that she didn't have. In the ancient world, people looked down on you if you didn't have a child. How many years has it been that she was hoping for a child? A lot. Thank you. Decades. Well done. Well done. A lot of years. And she is struggling with hoping and then hopes crushed. And then hoping more and then hopes crushed. She is a woman in pain. Not only is she childless, but her relationship with Abraham, let's face it, had, be, had been painful. It had been painful. On at least two occasions, Abraham said, eh, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Now, you know, you read that in the Bible, you think, well, this is the Bible, so things were different back then. No, she was broken over the failure of Abraham to boldly identify her as his wife. And her beauty is fading. We know from Genesis that she had been very beautiful, but age affects us all, doesn't it? And she's getting up there in age. And now she's in the latter years, her beauty is fading, and her heart is hard, and she is cynical. We know she's cynical because of the way Sarah expresses her contempt toward God. God says to Abraham, Abraham, within this year, you and Sarah are going to have a son. And what does Sarah do behind the tent flap? She laughs. Ha! Me? Are you kidding me? Uh, me have a son? However, in the text, it's clear that this was a silent laugh, a laugh in her heart, a laugh that could not be heard. It is a cynical laugh. It's the idea of... Yeah, right. Yeah, right. I'm going to resume an intimate relationship with my husband, and I'm going to have a, get pregnant, and I'm going to bear a child at my age? No way. This is a laugh of cynicism. And God now lovingly confronts Sarah. Why did Sarah laugh? God just read her mind. Sarah denies it, but God gently confronts her and says, no, Sarah, you did laugh. This is the first time in the Bible that God speaks directly 
to Sarah. It is a loving, gentle invitation to leave your cynicism. And trust me, it's like God is saying this, Sarah, if I can miraculously read your mind, then can I also miraculously give you the thing that I promised? Now, here's the cool thing when we host the presence of God. God's presence will often be a healing balm on the pain of our life. God's presence is a healing balm right here towards Sarah, healing Sarah of her cynicism, healing Sarah of some of her pains, offering fresh hope to a woman who had completely lost hope. He's inviting Sarah to hope again. You know, some of you here today, you're like, you're like Sarah. Life has not turned out like you'd hoped. Your job hasn't turned out like you'd hoped. Your family, in some ways, has not turned out like you'd hoped. You, as an indiv- a human being, you haven't turned out the way you expected you might turn out. And God's presence is an invitation to enter into a healing presence where God's, God's manifest presence make you realize that God is, is bigger than my expectations. He's bigger than my disappointments. He's bigger than my unfulfilled plans. He's bigger than the pain that breaks me right now. And as you encounter that supernatural presence, that healing balm begins to cover you and you say, okay, I can hope again. God does have a future for me again. God's manifest presence is a healing balm for Abraham and Sarah, but especially for Sarah. Now, at this point, God reveals himself to Abraham in a a different way, and uh, God is going to invite Abraham into uh, some secret plans for the future. Genesis 18, verse 16. The Lord said, now here's Yahweh God, the infinite personal God, and Yahweh is with two angelic beings, his divine counsel. And the Lord said, should I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and that all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him. By the way, just have to remember to visualize the story. Command his children and his household. There were all the tents in the tent city, all the servants. Where were his children? There were none. Abraham had hoped that that tent city would be packed with his kids, his in-law children and grandchildren. But that was not to be yet. I have chosen that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring Abraham what he has promised him. Why would God have this open conversation? Why, 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 would, why, why would he do that? Look down to then uh, at verse 22. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. This is the two angels. But Abraham still stood before Yahweh. Then Abraham drew near. There's something really fascinating going on here. The original text in Genesis reads this way. The Lord remained standing before Abraham. 
the scribes did not like that wording because it sounded as if Abraham was in charge and God was subservient to Abraham. So the scribes flipped it and changed it. Now, here's the thing. The original wording gives us a wonderful picture of God. As Abraham is hosting God's presence, God makes himself available to Abraham. God stands there waiting for Abraham to ask him a question, waiting for Abraham to intercede, waiting for Abraham to make a request. God is now making himself available so that Abraham will want something and ask for it. And Abraham uh, now, and now begins to do that. Remember, God is going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. God has the right to do that. God's going to judge them. And so Abraham now identifies his one. He's got a nephew down in that city. And so Abraham makes six requests. Lord, if you find 50 righteous, will you destroy Sodom? All right, what about 45? Okay, what about, what about 40? He's going downward at increments of five. Now, you know, he goes down at increments of 10. All right, what about, what about 30? What about 20? What about 10? Abraham is interceding before, before God, and God is making himself available to Abraham so that Abraham will make a request and intercede for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and especially for his nephew, Lot. Did Abraham get what he, was act- what he prayed for? Not exactly. Sodom and Gomorrah still got destroyed. Lot was rescued, but Sodom and Gomorrah still got destroyed. Let me tell you what God did, though, for Abraham. Abraham is learning about the presence of God. He prays. Lot is spared. Well, guess who Lot's children are? You remember? Uh, Lot's children are Moab and Ammon. What's going to happen to Moab and Ammon? Well, because Lot is spared and Lot has children, they are from an incestuous union, as you know. Uh, Two nations are formed, Moab and Ammon. Who comes from Moab? Ruth. Whose ancestor is Ruth? Jesus Christ. Uh, Ammon also comes from Abraham, and what does Ammon have to do with anything? (laughs) Well, in the future, uh, they are going to be blessed by the reign of the Messiah. Now, I just want you to know what what God did as Abraham hosted God's presence. God gave Abraham international influence that lasts thousands of years into the future. So realize what just happened. As Abraham is hosting the presence of God, he receives the benefit personally. There is healing of his hurts and pains, but there is also equipping because now Abraham is equipped in intercessory prayer to impact the nations, Moab and Ammon, to impact God's kingdom program. Ruth gives birth to and the whole line that leads up to Jesus and an impact on way off into the future with Ammon. It's amazing. It's amazing. 
Hosting the presence of God heals us from the hurts of life, and it allows us to have international influence. Okay, now let me, let me define the core concept. Here's the definition. Hosting God's presence is the act of spiritual awareness in which you sense that God is especially near. Let me give you more definitions. I would define it as the act of awareness in which you sense that God is near as your loving Abba Father, your daddy, your intimate dad who loves you. To put it another way, hosting the presence of God, uh, when, you, when you sense this, you joyfully enter into that nearness. You flow with his presence. You know what it's like to get with old friends? And the conversation flows, and you flow with the conversation. It's fun. You ever talk to somebody? You've, 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 we had a four-hour conversation. The conversation just flowed. It seemed so organic and natural. Hosting the presence of God is encountering this sense of flow as God's presence leads you. When you uh, then you remain in God's presence to love Him and learn Him, learn from Him, and be led by Him. That's hosting the presence of God. It's sensing His nearness, and it's being present in that, in that nearness, okay? So we started our healing prayer team at Grace about five years ago. And I've often told people I've learned more about the presence of God in those prayer sessions than anything that I encountered in the previous 30 years. Because I've had, I've had times in those prayer sessions, and I rarely lead them. I'm, I'm there as a participant Many times they're led by other members of our prayer team. But I have sensed the manifest presence of God in those healing prayer times in such a way, I'm, I'm blown away by it. I keep thinking that, okay, the next one, it's not going to happen. I, I don't, like, I don't invite that, but I think, you know, I'm thinking, I mean, this, is, this happens every single time. And what I find is the members of the prayer team flow back and forth in their prayers in such a way that everything syncs up. It's amazing. So let me give you a quick theology of, of, of presence. First part of the theology is that God is always present in your life. Holy Spirit indwells you. The moment you come to Christ, He indwells you forever. But then the Spirit seeks to fill you with His presence on a regular basis. Don't be drunk with wine, says Ephesians 5.18 but be continuously filled with the Spirit. However, hosting God's presence is a bit different than filling because when you host God's presence, you sense Him being near in a way that you feel emotionally and sense spiritually. Hosting God's presence is that recognition of that nearness. And then you... You, you, you go with that. All right, Lord, you're, I sense that you're here. I love this. I want what you have for me. Hosting his presence can come in good times and bad. We went through kind of a tough time as a family many years ago in Baltimore. And uh, we had four young kids. Life was hectic and crazy. We had one car. And it was just a crazy time. And I kept a journal during that time. And as I wrote in that journal, there were many times that I would sense the manifest presence of God, even as I'm writing about pain in my journal. 
Hosting the presence of God can, can come in hard times, difficult times. Hosting the presence of God can also come in good times. We had our whole family together uh, before Thanksgiving. When we gather, it's 20 of us. Cindy and I, our four kids, their spouses, 10 grandkids. I mean, it is, it is a big group. And there were many times where I felt the manifest presence of God as I saw my daughters, my son, relating to their children, my grandchildren. Hosting the presence of God can come in bad times. It can also come in good times. But here's the deal. The more you practice His presence through the filling of the Spirit, the more you recognize when God's manifest presence is near you. In other words, if you're about the discipline of the filling of the Spirit, you will then recognize God showing up for you in a loving and a kind and in a generous way. How did Abraham know that middle guy was God? Abraham was practiced at relating to the God of the universe. So again, here's the definition. Hosting God's presence is God making himself especially known to you in the space immediately around you. And then you enter into that with joy, gladness, and openness. Okay, so let's, let's apply this. How do we host God's presence personally and corporately? Well, the first applica application is this. Know that this can happen. Because I talk to a lot of believers who... Um, they, they're kind of fuzzy about this. They don't have a category for this. Maybe they haven't been taught that this happens sometimes. Maybe they sort of fear it. Maybe it seems too emotional for them, and so they, they want to shove this aside. I just want to urge you to believe that this is an important spiritual experience. It happened a lot in the Bible. It happened a lot. Many followers of Jesus say that this happened to them at particularly important points in their life. You think about historical figures like John Wesley, uh, uh, D.L. Moody, and, and others who wrote extensively about the fact that they sensed God's manifest presence, they welcomed that presence, they learned from God in that presence, and then they went forth sensing new power. So I just urge you to have a category for this. Remember what I said about, about God's kingdom. God's kingdom is his invisible spiritual presence around you. God's kingdom is to you what air is to an airplane. The air surrounds the airplane. It lifts the airplane up with the proper aerodynamics. God's kingdom is what water is to a fish. God's kingdom is spiritually present around you. And sometimes God makes manifest his special presence in such a way that you feel, wow, Lord, you're here, you're here, you're here, thank you. So what do you do when you sense it? You welcome it with gratitude. And what I find interesting is when this happens in the scriptures, there's not a lot of extensive intellectualized prayer, short staccato Prayers. God's manifest presence shows up in the temple in 2 
Chronicles chapter 7, and all they can do is, the Lord is good, His mercy endures forever. The Lord is good, His mercy endures forever. The Lord is good, His mercy endures forever. They were welcoming God's manifest presence. It's okay for you to say, Lord Jesus, thank you. Abba, Father, I welcome you. Holy Spirit, I thank you. Thank you a thousand times over. Thank you a million times over. You are here. I'm grateful. I enjoy this. I love you. I love you. It's okay to say, more, Lord. Lord, pour out more. It's okay to say that. It's okay to have short, staccato prayers where you enjoy that presence. Had somebody after the second service at Grace last week tell me that they had an encounter with the Holy Spirit a couple of weeks ago. And they, they said it was the first time I had encountered the Holy Spirit in that way. And they said, I just I felt overcome by God's goodness. I enjoyed, I enjoyed that, that sense of his presence. All right, how do we do this as a, as a church? Well, um, when people enter our atrium, I have a request. Here's my request. My request is that you would be a conduit of God's supernatural presence. Here's how you do that. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says this, the love of Christ controls us. Here's what that means. That word control means to squeeze, like squeezing toothpaste out of a toothpaste tube. And the way this is worded in the original language is the love of Christ controls us. That means the love that comes from Christ and the love that flows through us from Christ, okay? If you want the technical term, this is both an objective and a subjective genitive. I know too much information, but that's the grammar of that sentence. It's both objective and subjective. The love that comes from Christ squeezes us in what comes out the love of Christ. So my, my plea for you as, as you are members of Grace Community Church is that when you come to Grace on a Sunday, that you would be a conduit of the presence of Jesus by hosting his presence in your life and loving the people who come through our door. They could be people that you've seen for the past 22 years. They could be people who are brand new to Grace. You be a conduit of God's, of God's supernatural love. You know what that, that means? That means that you have to come to Grace Community Church filled with the Holy Spirit. You gotta come filled with the Holy Spirit. So I would encourage you, before you come to Grace, Lord Jesus, please fill me with the Holy Spirit. And it also continues um, in our worship center because um, when you think about Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Can you do that quietly? No. So give yourself to worship, corporate worship, um, and anticipating that God may manifest his supernatural presence to you in that moment, in that moment. So think for a second about, about Abraham. Abraham sees three people coming down the road. He senses something different about the man in the middle. He senses that that is God himself. God himself. That happens to you all the time. Revelation 3.20. 
Jesus says, the resurrected Christ says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open. I want to fellowship with you. I'm going to have a time for you to do that right now. So let's just about, we'll turn off the lights, we'll bow our heads. And I just want you to be able to say to the risen Jesus, Lord Jesus, I'm opening the door right now. I'm opening the door to your presence. I'm inviting you in. And Lord, today, in this moment, today, this week, I want to host your presence. Lord Jesus, I want to host your presence in my life. And I will thank you for all that shows up when that takes place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you want to be with us, that you want to invade our physical bodies, our minds, our hearts, our emotions, our will. Lord, we joyfully host you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for being